this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we begin with My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Dedication Darling Mother, at the last moment I am told that my book requires a dedication. Of course it does. This is it. Your devoted Maud. London, September 1908 Preface When first it was suggested to me that I should write this small book, it seemed to me to savor of imposing a little on the wonderful kindness with which my work and myself have been received. But when the suggestion was backed up by the advice, almost the demands, of friends in whose judgment I have confidence, my scruples vanished, and I decided, liberare animam meam, to liberate my mind, as the classic author puts it. If it should give pleasure to or interest the friends who have appreciated my work, or even bring those who have misunderstood it to a better understanding, and especially if it prove helpful to any young girl whose ambition it is to take up an artistic career, I shall feel most amply rewarded. I shall feel that I was justified in braving criticism on the score of the premature publication of even so brief an outline as this of my life's work. M. A. My Life and Dancing Chapter 1 Introductory How came it about that you adopted the classical methods of dance? How did you set about acquiring the art of antique dancing? What gave you the idea of reviving the style of the ancients in your dances? These are the earliest questions of the curious critic. Her manner of interpreting the emotional phases of music is a revelation. This manner of dancing is a remarkable novelty. She has introduced wonderful innovations in the art of dancing. These are the pronouncements of the kindly and courteous critic. They are wrong, wrong, wrong. How I dance and why and what is my intention in my dance no one can say. I least of all, for as I think and breathe and live, so I dance. And as for method, a searching cry from one of the woodwind instruments in the orchestra, a deeper sigh from the violoncellos, a sudden impulsive throb from the great bass, or a warning muffled note from the horns, and what I have to express as I dance above them on the stage changes, as a chance word said in a new tone in a conversation alters the whole tenor of the talk. Many who have watched me time after time have asked me why I can never dance to the same measure twice in exactly the same manner. I cannot answer. 
I only know that as the music calls, so every muscular fiber that responds to the beating of my heart responds to that particular voice, and the tone becomes movement. A novelty? An innovation? No, indeed. When first I came to London, one of my earliest friends, a critic who was perhaps more poet than critic, and perhaps more seer than either, said to me, You danced, I think, in Syracusan groves, and on the slopes of Mount Etna, for the pleasure of Dorian and Ionian immigrants, when Sicily was a peaceful colony of ancient Greece. You danced whilst Theocritus read his idols in the Mediterranean twilights, and then you went to sleep, and have wakened again just now. But you have not forgotten how you danced to the wailing and the laughter of Sicilian flutes, and to the command of Sicilian tabors. I wonder. I think I can see the boats from Argolis, seven hundred years before Christ, landing their companies upon the Trinacrian sands. I can skip five hundred years, and stand in the theatre at Tarmina, as it was then, listening to the tired voice of Theocritus himself, a settler upon those whispering shores, reciting the idol, compelling my limbs to sway to the music of his thought, whilst the chorus took up the burden of his tale. And then the Carthaginian wars, the struggle for our island, the purple splendors and brutalities of the Roman triumph. The Sicily of Theocritus was crushed, its groves were hushed and dead, and I, I think, they laid me in a little niche beside a stream, under the hedges of cactus, and the geraniums stained by the sunrise, and I waited, waited. Syracuse in Sicily, B.C. 210. London in England, A.D. 1908. What a wild fancy, and yet I do sometimes think that I was one with those ancient dancers, whose duty in life was to express in motion the hopes, fears, passions, regrets, which rose in men's and women's hearts, and found expression in movement when the world was younger and simpler, and more accustomed to what Carlyle has called all sorts of sudden sincerities. How much I remember, how much I have read and forgotten, how much I have dreamed of those earliest dancers, I hardly know. But let me set it down with the help of a few old writers who noted these things at the time by way of introduction to my egotistical little book. The origin of dancing is panoplied with the dim magnificence of myth. We are not to believe, says Lucian, in a well-known dialogue, that dancing is of modern invention, born recently, or even that our ancestors saw its beginning. Those who have spoken with truth of the origin of this art affirm that it takes its birth from the time of the creation of all things, and that it is as old as love, the most ancient of the gods. Cybele herself, daughter of the earth and sky, wife of Saturn and mother of the gods, taught the art of dancing to the Corbantes on Mount Ida, 
and to the Corotes in Crete, and among the servants of the Pantheon her priests were called Balatoris, the dancers, and the dance of the Curites was said to be that of Daedalus, engraved, as Homer tells us in the Iliad, upon the shields of Achilles. When the cloud curtains of mythology are raised and historic times begin, we hear first of all of the Heratic dances of Egypt, and find representations of them upon Egyptian monuments from 2500 to 1200 BC. These dances interpreted the music of the spheres and the harmonic progression of the stars. We have representations of the dances in honor of Apis the bull, the Diodorus Siculus, that tender master of Chronicles, tells us that Osiris was served by nine maidens skilled in all arts that relate to musical expression, who came to be called by the Greeks the Nine Muses. You have in your midst, on the tablets and vases from Thebes in the British Museum, pictures of the dances that accompanied their funerals and festivals, and modern travelers in Egypt may see in the dances of the Gazawi the dance of the bee and of the bottle, the survival of the very modes depicted upon those ancient decorations. Born in Egypt, the dance became nurtured in the cradle of the arts, Greece, and I love to see in imagination the nine muses led by Terpsichor as they were seen by Hesiod, treading in their beautiful measures the violets of Hippocrene. And in other moods my mind conjures up the Bacchantes, encircling Silenus with their riot of spontaneous movement. We have it from Aristotle that, in dancing, all the passions of man found illustration three hundred years before the Augustan era, and no Athenian festivity was shorn of this art, which Simonides aptly described as silent poetry. If proof were wanting of the importance that the Greeks attached to dancing, it may be found throughout the pages of Plato's Republic, where it is prescribed as one of the principal branches of education. We remember the dances that Homer describes at the banquets in the Odyssey, if you would have them brought more vividly before you, spend an hour among the exquisite figures from Tanagra and Myrina in the British Museum and in the galleries of the Louvre. A learned and enthusiastic student and professor of the art, Monsieur Derat, in his Dictionnaire de la Danse, Paris, 1896, has given us a wonderful study of these early Greek dances. It is not for me to attempt an elaborate description of them in this place, but some of the principal dances may be evoked by the most cursory description. The Emilea, which are referred to by Plato, and which were in the nature of sacred and tragic invocations to the gods. The Hyperchema, religious dances, accompanied by a singing chorus, which were executed in honor originally of Apollo, and later of Dionysos and Athena. The exquisite gymnopedia, simulating an attack and defense, danced by naked boys crowned with chaplets of palm, and the endometia, 
which were more secular dances, characterized by brisker action and executed by performers clad in the richest draperies. From these four all the dances of antiquity took their derivation, and among them what more idyllic than that known as Cariatis, the dance sacred to Diana, danced by noble Spartan maidens in the woods near Carrier. It was the dance of innocence, danced naked around the altars of the goddess, the maidens carrying upon their heads baskets containing the materials and implements proper to the sacrifice, and their chaste rites have been immortalized in our modern architecture by the pillars that are known to us as Cariatides. The virgin goddess claimed, too, the dance known as Knossia, a dance executed by girls in chaplets of flowers and youths girt with golden swords and bearing golden shields. It was a warlike measure representing the labyrinth of the Minotaur at Knossus. To her also was sacred the purple dance, so-called from the color of the tunics in which it was executed. Sparta, again, was the home of another dance sacred to Diana, the Hormos, a kind of farandal instituted by Lycurgus to inculcate in the youths and maidens who danced it without draperies the fearless modesty which was the boast of the Spartan national character. Even in such early days there were those in whom nudity in women awoke base thoughts, to whom Lycurgus replied, Plutarch being his historiographer, I wish them to perform the same exercises as men, that they may equal men in strength, health, virtue, and generosity of soul, and that they may learn to despise the opinion of the vulgar. The youth of Greece were, as we have seen, educated to the dance with a view to the exercise and training of their muscles. Chief among their exercises were the Pyrrhic and the Memphitic dances, which were military in their character, and of which we find countless representations upon Greek and Etruscan vases and mural paintings. The Pyrrhic dance, which has been described in turn by Xenophon and Apuleius, was danced principally at the festival of the Panatene in honor of Minerva. Later, we learn, the reed and the thyrsus took the place of the weapons of war, and the dance degenerated into a Bacchic revel. The Memphitic dance was equally warlike in its origin, but was danced to the music of flutes. It was at this period in the history of dancing that its evolutions took on the earliest elements of pantomime, the invention of which is attributed to Cassiodorus, to one Philistine, but it must not be imagined that pantomime was tinged at this time with the buffooneries which were later its leading characteristic, and which led to its ultimate degradation. The best pantomimists were called ethologues, meaning painters of manners, and their performances were known as hypotheses, meaning moralities. All these early writers are, to some extent, vague and contradictory in their accounts, but I have chosen for record only the clearest descriptions that have come down to us. On the Greek stage, 
the hyperchematic dances reached their highest developments of music, dance, and statuesque poses, and they were directed by a leader who punctuated the measures with the click of oyster shells, a practice that finds its parallel in the use of the modern castanets. It is not surprising that with the intrusion of pantomime and of the comic element, the dances degenerated, and we read of the cordax, named after cordax the satyr, which was an indecent buffoonery, for the dancing of which Theophrastus reproaches a man who danced it when sober. The dance known as Sicinis was of even baser sort, and the colia was little other than the twitching of the body muscles that has its modern equivalent in the danse du ventre of the latter-day Almey and Gazaoui. The names of a vast number of these mimetic dances have been handed down to us by historians of classic manners and customs, and Monsieur Vouillet, in his Histoire de la Danse, gives a list of them, the titles of which sufficiently indicate their nature. But contemporary and coexistent with these were many very beautiful dances peculiar to women, representations of which have charmed us all as we see them depicted in the mural paintings of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Such were the Hygra, the Calabis, and the Oclasma, exquisite and graceful measures danced to the music of single and double flutes. Would that I could go back in dreams to see a Greek maiden dancing the flower dance that was known as Anthema. But the Greeks were not the only pupils of the ancient Egyptian dancers. The Hebrews, during the time of the Egyptian captivity, without doubt, learnt much of this art from their taskmasters and one might easily quote a vast number of passages from the Old Testament, having reference to the dances of the Israelites. Praise him with timbrel and with dance, commands the psalmist, and the dance of King David before the ark requires but passing mention. The pitiful episode of Jephthah's daughter springs to one's mind, and we learn that the daughters of Shiloh were dancing when the sons of Benjamin descended upon them, as the Romans upon the Sabine women. There were dances in honor of Judith when she returned bearing the head of Holofernes, probably a kind of country dance danced by two rows of girls. I can hardly leave this part of my subject without referring to the dance of Salome, though I have devoted a later chapter to it. What this dance actually may have been, it is difficult to conjecture, but most authorities agree that it must have been one of the strongly dramatic representations of human passion, which found expression then, as it does now, in mimetic dance. One of the older versions of the New Testament records that she vaulted, and this has given the impression that her dance was acrobatic rather than graceful, and perhaps more curious than polite. Indeed, there is a well-known miniature from a manuscript of the 14th century in which Salome is represented as dancing on her hands, with her feet in the air. I can only hope and believe, as students of the Middle Ages believe, 
that the painter was merely inspired by the recollection of the Mountbanks, who visited English and continental fairs in the dawn of manners, with whom this particular feat was a favorite illustration of their skill. We must next trace the history of the art in Rome, and while doing so, it must be borne in mind that Rome was still in a condition of barbarism when the civilization of Greece was almost at its zenith. Passing over the war dance called Bellacrepa, said to have been invented by Romulus to celebrate the rape of the Sabines, the earliest account we have of Roman dancing is that of the Salii, twelve priests appointed by the Pacific Numa Pompilius to celebrate the gods in ceremonial and warlike dances. It was not long, however, before the Romans adopted the arts of Greece, as it had already adopted its gods, and we may take it that the Greek methods of dancing found a ready acceptance, and that dancing in Rome speedily attained a development that fell not far short of the Greek originals. It is not surprising, regard being had to the nature and origin of the Roman people, that what was bad in the art of dancing soon gained a firm foothold, and that the art rapidly reached the condition of degeneracy which it attained by slower degrees in Greece. Sipo Emilius records his visit to a school where noble children were educated, and where a boy of twelve performed a dance worthy of the most degraded slave. The Bacchanalia, originally of a religious and ceremonial character, soon became corrupted into mere orgies. The Lupercalia, dances in honor of the god Pan, shared the same fate, and it may be said that, until the Augustan era, dancing as a distinct art was confined to Tuscan buffoons. It was, however, a condition of affairs that led insensibly to a high development of the aft of pantomime, which at the dawn of the Augustan age had become the mania, the rage of the Roman populace. The Ludionis of the rival pantomimists, Bathelus and Pylades, divided the city into factions, and men and women alike view with one another in their adhesion to, and patronage, to the point of imitation, of these rival leaders. Cicero and Horace both stigmatized dancing as an infamous practice, and we have it on record that Sallust reproached a Roman lady with the taunt that she danced with too much skill for a virtuous woman. The most famous female dancers in Rome were the Gadetanians, a class of women who came from Cadiz, and so great was their renown that we find their eulogies in the works of Martial, Pliny, Petronius, Appian, and Strabo. The Gaditanian delights, as they were called, may be said to have been the earliest prime ballerina in the history of the art. The power of dancing, as a means of appealing to the feelings of the populace, did not escape the fathers of the early Christian church, and many accounts have come down to us by way of reference to the ritual dances of that church. As early as 744 A.D., these dances were forbidden by a decree of Pope Zacharias. In the 12th century, religious dances were banned by Bishop Odo of Paris, 
and they were again interdicted by a decree of Parliament in 1667. But the clergy, in whose hands was the sale of licenses to institute these functions, did all in their power to resist and set at naught the decrees. Such dances still obtain upon anniversary festivals today in many continental cities, especially in Spain, and the religious dances at Limoges in honor of St. Mariciel are a notable aces in point. The dancing dervishes of the East afford another instance of a survival of the kind. Purely secular dancing of the earlier classic kind appears to have enjoyed a revival amongst the early Gauls, but it was of a debased type, and we find it forbidden in the year 554 by Schildebert. With the birth of chivalry in the early Middle Ages, we note the real renaissance of the dance, and it is easy to trace the influence and traditions of the early Greek school in the Ronde, Bore, and Branle of Auvergne, and the minuets and farandoles of Languedoc and elsewhere in the south of France, where the popular dances of the country people differ little today from those that were danced a thousand years ago. These were the dances of the provinces. At court, dancing had developed into masquerades, and from thence to the ballet was an easy and natural step. At one of the earliest of these, still known as the Ballet des Ardons, Charles the Sixth, being present, dressed as a savage, his costume caught fire, and he suffered a shock that brought about his madness. Theatrical dancing as we know it today had its origin in Italy, where, at the end of the 15th century, Cardinal Riario, nephew of the Pope, composed ballets and had them performed by his own company in the castle of St. Angelo. In Italy, the Medicis revived the dances of ancient Greece and Rome. The art flourished in the 16th and 17th centuries, and side by side with the stately Pavan and Courant, associated with the names of Louis XIII, Richelieu, and Henry IV, we have the contrasting pictures of the dances of death that owed their existence to Albert Dürer and Holbein. The apogee of the art of dancing was reached in the reign of Louis XIV, who founded the Académie de la Danse in 1661 with Kino as director and J.B. Lully as composer. It was not, however, until 1681 women dancers appeared again upon the stage, and we have an account of the performance at this time of four ladies in a ballet entitled Le Triomphe de l'Amour. Dancing continued to be more and more elegant and refined during the reigns of Louis XV and XVI, when the gavotte and minuet recalled some of the stately graces of old times. But suddenly the end came the music was silenced, the lights extinguished, and in the place of the elegant dances in the palaces, men and women ran riot in the streets, dancing, dancing madly. It was the Carmagnole, the dance of the revolution. 
The exaggerated classic revival that took place at the time of the Directoire brought back with it a theatrical resurrection of some of the classic modes. But they died out again, giving place to the modern style, which dates from 1830. In the foregoing short sketch of the history of classical dancing, I have tried to show, within the restricted limits to which I am necessarily confined, that in all ages in which dancing properly so-called has flourished, it has been not so much the aim as the natural condition of the art to express the nature, the characteristics, the emotions of those who have pursued it. Nations dance, when they dance naturally, to the tune of their destinies. The moment that dancing becomes bound by rules and conventions, it loses the very rationale of its existence. Who then shall say that true dancing can be taught? As well might we try to teach the birds to sing, the butterflies to soar by rote and measure among the glades and the flowers. It was not with taught precision of scholastic methods, it was not in ambition to realize perfection in a given mode that we danced in the shady groves and sunlit meads of Argolis, or by the murmuring seas of the Sicily of Theocritus. <laughs>